KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. The legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King is remembered today. To change evil requires an extraordinarily heavy dose of good. I'm Jade Hindman with Mark Sauer. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A look at Biden's new approach to the threat of climate change. Clearly, this is progress, and we're excited to work with the president-elect and his cabinet and everybody else to make real change happen. And a look at San Diego's history of racial discrimination. Plus, the latest on the distribution of COVID-19 vaccines. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program. Shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. As we reflect on the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. today, it's important to look at the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s and how it shapes the movement now. One of the people who marched alongside Dr. King is Reverend James Lawson Jr. He is often referred to as the mind of the movement. Dr. King called him the leading theorist and strategist of nonviolence in the world. Today, he remains a staunch defender of human rights and is a lecturer at UCLA, where he teaches about nonviolent social movements. Reverend Lawson, it is an honor to have you on Midday Edition today. Thank you. My pleasure to do it on this day. You know, I first want to listen to this 1963 audio clip from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, also known as Normalcy No More. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. They were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. You know, Reverend Lawson, when you listen to that, um, in what ways do those words still ring true? Is America still in default? Yes. You asked the question. The simple answer is yes. And the United States of America does not know it. We, the people of the United States of America, are not aware very often of how 
far short we have fallen of those two historical documents, especially their preambles. So what will it take then for America to truly live up to the promises um, of the Constitution even and to make good on their check, as Dr. King put it? Well, this is where the United States ought to be grateful that we have uh, a large black leadership because the movement that the late Congressman John Lewis calls uh, uh, called uh, the Nonviolent Mo- Movement of America, 1953 and to 1973. I date it in those 20 years. That movement, th- the Nonviolent Movement of the USA, that engaged in direct action and directly challenging the tyranny the lack of the vote, discrimination in employment, the violence against black people. That was a integrated part of racism. All of that we challenged. Uh, Then today in the 21st century, we have what I have consistently called for, the Black Lives Matter, which is an evolutionary a part of the 20th century of our black freedom movement or our black struggle for liberty, equality, justice for all, or the beloved community. So in those, in these two great movements, the nation has been given an invitation to do the slow work, sometimes complicated work, but the most significant work in carrying out and becoming a society that is fully democratic, that is moving towards becoming a beloved community. And that has begun to happen in the last 60 years. And the Black Lives Matter uh, evolutionary campaign, the finest campaign of nonviolence the nation has ever had. Over 8,000 demonstrations in more than 2,500 locations in all 50 states, involving maybe 15 to 25 million people, the most um, people diverse demonstrations the nation has ever had in that in, in this campaign of Black Lives Matter in the 21st century, this is the continuing hope that our nation can pay off, fulfill the promissory note of which Dr. King talks. Do you look at what Stacey Abrams was able to achieve in Georgia through voter registration efforts as a form of nonviolent resistance? Absolutely. The vote is a nonviolent tactic in the history of nonviolent literature. Voting to make changes and organizing to make changes through the politics is a major way that you work against in tyranny. Tyranny, that of course is part of the history in our own country. 
Right. Now, mm-hmm. when you saw the violent attempt at a coup take place at the U.S. Capitol two weeks ago and law enforcement's response to those rioters, uh, compared to the treatment you received during your nonviolent protest for equality with Dr. King, what were your thoughts? I had a multiplicity of thoughts. One was we have had this kind of violence across. 300 years in the United States by white uh, people. Um, uh, who were not seeking justice and truth for all, but were seeking power. And that violence has never been um, effectively prosecuted. So in one way, I thought of the fact that uh, the chickens have come home to roost. As much as I, I did not want that, and would not have supported anything like that. Uh, the United States has not, in our various governments at the state, local, national level, we have not really resisted the use or misuse of violence for the purpose of domination and control. And and that riot was a direct result, January 6th, of our not stopping police brutality towards black people and or stopping the militia groups that call for a race war, which is why they do their exercises in the jungles of California and Michigan and elsewhere. And we have never held them responsible publicly for their misdeeds. We have to understand that. Any number of the people who've now been arrested have a personal history of threat and of acts of violence and speeches of violence in their personal journeys. You can look at this. I have followed much of this from the 20th, early 20th century to the present moment. Um, so I, I would, that was, that was one of the things in my mind. Uh, I, I think secondly, my major um, thought was about how with all the warnings, the Capitol Police and the Congress um, had not done the work of preparing for the kinds of groups that declared on in social media and all that they were coming. And I should edit this by saying that there were strong voices like Congresswoman Maxine Waters who talked with the chief of police about preparation for the January 6th demonstrations and was assured that a plan was in place. But that goes to show you how we civilian elected officials and others must take responsibility to see to it that our police operate for the support and advancement of our society as a society 
shaping itself according to the preamble of the Constitution or the preamble of the Declaration of Independence. There are calls for unity after that insurrection. Can peace and unity exist without justice and accountability first? Of course not. Um, Our society has never been a peaceful society. We are the most violent culture across 400 years that the earth has ever known. And you're exactly right. The tensions are not tensions between primarily Trump and us or between the Republicans and Democrats. The tensions are caused by the often grotesque injustice in our country. Uh, and so to, to achieve unity, we have to dismantle we have to dismantle the racism and the sexism and the violence, and especially the economic injustice. But that requires you, we eradicate, uh, our eradicating the wrong so that unity can take over our minds, our hearts, and our daily work. I've been speaking with Reverend James Lawson. Reverend Lawson, thank you for your work and for sharing your insight on this Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Well, thank you for having me and for doing this. As we talk about the Capitol riot, we can't overlook the connection and current threat of white extremist terrorism, nor can we overlook its place in history. I'd like to turn the conversation now to Legina Gauze, a professor of political science at UCSD who holds a PhD in public policy and political science. Professor Gauze, welcome. Thank you for having me today. I'll start by asking you the same question uh, I asked Reverend Lawson. When you saw the violent attempt at a coup take place at the U.S. Capitol and law enforcement's response compared to their response over the summer to Black Lives Matter protests and even civil rights demonstrations in the 50s and 60s, what was your reaction? My reaction was surprise and alarm, um, mostly because when we when I saw the, the Capitol Hill riots, I saw police who were in their normal uniforms and they weren't in riot gear, they weren't deploying tear gas or rubber bullets or even using blockades. And it it's not the alarm because I felt like they should be using those in all circumstances. It's just when I saw protests in the past and in the uh, last summer in 2020, but also in even during the civil rights movement, police were talking about how they needed to use these more excessive tools uh, of these more excessive uses of force because they've said that they were necessary in order to to halt or to uh, address the the threat that was occurring. When we saw what happened on June uh, in June first, twenty twenty, almost six months ago, or almost I guess almost nine months ago now, uh, we saw almost six thousand law enforcement agents um, from even federal agencies like ICE and the DEA, the National Guard. They were all mobilized. Uh, against a, t- a potential threat by Black Lives Matter protests who were very peaceful, not uh, not aggressive. And over 300 people were arrested then. Only 60 people were arrested on January 6th, which was a huge difference. And a lot of times they try to justify the difference in use of force by saying that Black Lives Matter protests are very violent, right? 
And the data does just not support this. Uh, there's data that shows that even since 2017, if you look at all those years, 96% of those were nonviolent. And in comparison, you have the, the, the attack on uh, Capitol Hill, sorry, that were occurring. And there was just a lot of aggression, a lot of violence, people lost their lives, and yet still there wasn't the same mobilization. And even today, considering we're celebrating Martin Luther King, a lot of his protests were purposefully peaceful. He had a, a huge uh, agenda of nonviolent resistance where there were all these peaceful demonstrations, and yet still police were sending dogs on protesters, sending fire hoses against them. And you might even recall Bloody Sunday where John Lewis and many other Black Americans were brutally beaten for attempting to walk across a bridge, the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And we saw a completely different response in, in this, the recent Capitol riots. And, you know, let's talk about the bigger picture here. You know, today there are threats of violence all over this country from armed white supremacist groups and other extremists who have been emboldened for years and planning attacks in plain sight online, just like the one at the Capitol. And despite the warnings, why do you think there's been a delayed law enforcement reaction to this growing threat? So in my work, I talk about how uh, when you think about the, the, the white supremacist type protests and then also Black Lives Matter protests and civil rights movement protests in the 1960s, a lot of the difference was based on who the groups were and what they wanted, right? In, in the United States, there's this common stereotype, this false stereotype that Black people are prone to violence and also that America, um, Americans are more white, right? They're, they're more likely to be perceived as white people. Um, and less of a threat uh, to our institutions. Our institutions were built in a way to protect white people, white wealth. And uh, in, in many ways, the, the threat by, by Black Lives Matter protesters or civil rights movement protesters for more progress and equality challenges a status quo that is built within our institutions. It's uh, the way many of our laws were created, were created to defend those institutions and defend the very things that uh, these white supremacist groups are protesting about. So some part of it is just these, this stereotype, this perception of uh, what it means to be criminal and, and, and do bad behaviors that police are not immune to. The other part is police, there are many police officers who are who have similar beliefs as some of these white supremacist groups. Looking at Capitol Hill riots, there were police officers, law enforcement agents, who were also attacking the Capitol in the name of de defending uh, what they believe democracy in the United States should be, which is more of a white supremacist type democracy. Um, and uh, even in the civil rights movement, you had uh, the FBI with COINTELPRO, which was a, a, a program instituted by FBI and, and, and Hoover to really try to infiltrate and diminish uh, the civil rights claims uh, that were uh, made to explicitly challenge the status quo. Most of the efforts by COINTELPRO, which included very illegal behaviors, wiretaps, sometimes even violence and assassinations, were meant to keep that progress from happening. And it was done by law enforcement agents. Hmm. And given all of that, what opportunities do you see for the modern civil rights movement like Black Lives Matter to influence legislation and policy now that the Biden-Harris administration will be inaugurated this week? 
Yeah, so one thing about uh, the Biden-Harris administration is that it is in power. It, it did win the election because of the efforts by civil rights groups. And if they hope to win elections again, they need to put forth policies that actually achieve some of the, the civil rights progress that uh, these groups are asking for in their protest behavior. So one thing, it just institutionally, if they want to continue to win elections, want to the win the midterms and then the 2024 presidential election, they'll need to institute policies that, that really respond to these groups so that they are continuing to support them electorally. But also beyond just the electoral incentive, uh, this administration is a lot more uh, willing and desires, or at least in, in the platform of the political party, uh, to produce these types of policies compared to the one that's outgoing, the Trump administration. So if they, they want to say that they are achieving their policy goals, then they actually have to, to deliver on some of these promises. I've been speaking with UC San Diego political science professor, Legina Gauz. Professor Gauz, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for having me today. It was a pleasant surprise to open the San Diego Union-Tribune this morning and see an introduction on the front page of a new regular column. It will, quote, explore the many ways people's identities and values shape our ideas about government, politics, culture, and more. And the man writing the new column is Charles T. Clark, who joins me now. Charles, welcome to Midday Edition, and congratulations. Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate it. Excited to be here. Well, let's start with the genesis of your new column. How did it all come about? I had been the politics and county government reporter here for uh, coming up on two and a half years, although I enjoyed a lot of the work I did. I, I wanted to try something new. And when you kind of added that with the backdrop of everything this, that happened this summer, you know, in light of the, the killing of George Floyd, I really had been thinking about a few different ideas related to uh, social justice and racial justice issues. And I actually did a commentary back then about uh, Gianna Floyd Uh, that kind of laid the groundwork for launching this whole endeavor, which was this idea of taking kind of a broader approach to daily news and civic life in San Diego and all these different things that make up the culture here. Now, you had covered the county government beat for a long time for the Union Tribune. Very well, I might add. We've had you as a regular on my Friday roundtable program. Now, uh, was it a tough decision to switch from a busy, important beat to it's a very different beast writing a a column? What uh, what are your thoughts there? Tell us what it's like making that switch. You know, honestly, uh, it it was a bit intimidating. But going into something like this where it's a, a bit more intimate and developing a personal relationship with readers was kind of a scary thing. Uh, and I was just very excited that the the UT was open to, to giving this a go. Now, I'll point out to our listeners that you are a black man, and I submit an excellent choice for this particular column. Uh, by way of introduction, tell us about your background in life and in journalism that brings you to this point in your career. You know, originally, originally, I'm from Kansas City. Uh, most of the core of my family is from the Midwest originally. My dad is black. He was born in Kansas City, uh, pre-Civil Rights Act. Uh, my mom is white from Sioux City, Iowa. But really, I, I you know, had a diversity of experiences growing up. I moved to Minneapolis and Phoenix and a lot of different places. Uh, and, and I got my exposure to journalism while in college, uh, which was really, you know, I was drawn to because of the fact that I like to write and I like to talk and listen to people. One thing that I think has really defined me over the years is 
you know, all the different things that make up my identity from being someone from Kansas City, which I still identify with, um, but also just, you know, the obvious one being racially. You know, I am a black man. That's how I experience the world. And it's informed a lot of how I uh, see different things. Obviously, like uh, I would venture, I guess, every black person in this country, I've experienced racism in, in uh, different forms, uh, you know, as far back as childhood. Um, Because I know that I have this lived experience that, you know, while you see it more often or you're starting to see it more in newsrooms um, and an increase in diversity, uh, it is a pretty unique perspective, I think, for uh, certainly a columnist at a, a local paper to have. Now, entirely fitting it was to launch this column on Martin Luther King Day and your topic is San Diego's shocking history of overt racism. Explain as you do in the column about the strong resistance to honor Dr. King back in the 1980s here. It was interesting when I started getting the idea of when we wanted to launch this thing. um, This was actually an idea that I had been thinking about for a few years. Um, One of the first events I went to was a community event uh, with Shirley, uh, Dr. Shirley Weber. Um, And this story actually came up when I was at this event several years ago about, you know, back in 1986, the city of San Diego decided they wanted to name a street after Dr. King, uh, which was similar to what most major cities in the country were doing around the time with uh, Martin Luther King Day becoming a national holiday the same year. The first choice for the city council uh, ended up getting a lot of pushback um, from community members who, some of whom actually explicitly told the LA Times they opposed Dr. King's mission. Uh, They ended up choosing Market Street ultimately as the street that they were going to rename Martin Luther King Way. They did it and then got this huge pushback Um, from mainly downtown business owners, um, the majority of whom were white. You know, they said things like, oh, it confuses customers. But the big thing that I kept seeing in archives that I kept coming back to, it's, you know, disregarding San Diego's heritage, Um, which I think a lot of us, you know, certainly pick up on that as a buzzword, uh, given some of the conversations we've seen the last several years over Confederate monuments and things like that, where oftentimes there's this reference to heritage to justify not doing something These downtown business owners mounted this fight. They got a ballot initiative pushed and put onto the ballot that would permanently revoke the name and rename it Market Street again, which, by the way, was not even the original name of the street. And ultimately, uh, in a very disappointing fashion, San Diego voters approved uh, or pushed and approved rejecting Martin Luther King Way and flipping it back to Market Street. But then when you look at it, I think in the kind of just where it fits in with the history of San Diego, it's not entirely that surprising because this is a region that, much like the rest of the country, has a deeply racist history. Um, Despite, I think, how most of us probably uh, interpret this place, especially, you know, what's used as progressive California. We'll look forward to reading your column on Tuesdays and Fridays in the local section. I've been speaking with Charles T. Clark, whose new column debuted today in the San Diego Union Tribune. Thanks, Charles. Thank you, Mark. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, 
we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Mark Sauer. Last Friday, San Diego County reported 2,695 new COVID-19 cases, 32 deaths, and 337 hospitalizations. These numbers actually represent a slight decline in the new surge of cases resulting from the holidays. But conditions are still dire in local hospitals. Intensive care units in the county are at or near capacity. And the situation for ECMO machines, which take over for the heart and lungs by removing carbon dioxide and adding oxygen, is even worse. KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento spoke with Scripps Health CEO Chris Van Gorder last Thursday about how Scripps is dealing with the onslaught of cases. In part two of that interview, Van Gorder talks about the availability of ICU beds and ECMO machines. The other big concern going on right now is ICU capacity. We've heard at the state level that hospitalizations are improving or at least stabilizing a little bit. Um, is that what you're seeing in your facilities as well? Well, our ICUs today are at 104% capacity. Um, so we are uh, at surge. Um, we are at about 200% uh, correction, 167% capacity in Encinitas, 104 at La Jolla, 106 at uh, Mercy San Diego. So um, we are full, uh, but we're opening additional capacity um, every day. I mean, we've got engineers that are literally converting regular floors into negative pressure isolation wards. So we've still got a little bit of capacity uh, that we can build into, but we are bulging at the seams. Staffing is tight. Um, We have seen a a little flattening out over the last maybe four or five days. Uh, I know Sharp went up today. I haven't seen their final numbers yet. We actually dropped by eight patients today. Uh, But the amount of turnover in patients is astronomical. I mean, to in the last 24 hours, we had, um, let me see, 12, 15 deaths, um, and we discharged 56 patients. Um, and so, you know, you can see this enormous turnover of uh, patients that are being admitted uh, and uh, patients that are being discharged, and sadly, way too many patients who are dying. This morning, uh, when I said we were at 104% capacity, we had, I think, seven ICU beds available, and we had well in excess of 20 patients waiting for beds in our emergency departments. How do you decide who gets those first seven beds and who has to wait? That's a clinical decision made by the individual hospitals. Remember, I'm talking about the discharges. So they were waiting for that group of patients that were going to get discharged to be discharged home today. And as those beds opened up, they're obviously terminally cleaned. And then at that point, we can admit the patient to, uh, to a new bed. So it's a constant battle of you know, holding for a while until a patient uh, either dies or dis- is discharged and then we can put another patient in that bed. And we keep hearing about crisis care, the crisis care continuum. We've heard Dr. Galley say that no, um, as of last time I heard him speak, that no hospital has actually activated crisis care, but he did say that hospitals are implementing parts of crisis care. Are you implementing parts of crisis care? And if so, what is that? Um, Crisis care, obviously we put the triage teams together and they make decisions based upon uh, both um, um, a, a, an algorithm that our electronic health record gives them and, and their own clinical decisions, ethical decisions uh, on who should receive the care versus somebody that 
might not get that care. Um, we have not had to do that yet. Uh, we are very close uh, on ECMO. Um, we are pretty close. We, are, have, we have eight ECMO machines and basically the staff to run the eight. Um, and we have been full for the last uh, almost week. We actually had one patient that um, an additional patient, we, and there's a ECMO consortium, very well organized here in San Diego County. Other counties are actually looking at us to, to model, but uh, uh, where we can actually move equipment and if necessary patients around to get the patient where the equipment is. And we were able to borrow uh, a machine from UCSD and get the, a ninth patient on the ECMO machine when we needed it. So, uh, but we are, we are right maxed out. And at a certain point here, I mean, literally it could be today, uh, we may have to use crisis care protocols to decide uh, who, who can get the ECMO machine and who's going to be left off the ECMO machine. You did just say that there was, uh, you just, just provide an example of collaboration with UC San Diego, but you know, I talked to a lot of different people and I'm actually hearing that um, access to ECMO from a bunch of different hospitals is difficult. I'm right. hearing allegations that um, certain types of patients who have private insurance are being uh, prioritized over other individuals um, with little uh, explanation why. Are you experiencing that? Have you received complaints of that happening in your own facilities? No, I have actually, you're the first person I've ever heard that from. Uh, economics or payer mix does not come into play in the decision. It's a clinical decision literally made by the physicians and our ECMO team. And, um, and uh, so as far as I know, economics, payer mix is not coming into play at all. Joe Biden will be sworn in as the 46th president this week. And this new administration means a new approach to the existential threat of climate change, a threat the new president calls the greatest challenge facing our nation and the world. His plan connects the environment with the economy. It calls for a 100% clean economy and net zero emissions by 2050, infrastructure investments in transportation and energy production and distribution, rallying the rest of the world to meet the threat of climate change, taking action against fossil fuel companies and other major polluters who disproportionately harm low-income communities, and help for workers transitioning to new clean industries. As part of coverage from the KPBS Climate Change Desk, we checked in with a number of San Diego leaders and experts on the environment and clean energy for their reactions to the incoming president's plan. David Victor is a professor of industrial organization at UC San Diego and co-leader of UCSD's Deep Decarbonation Initiative. He says getting the United States back into the Paris Climate Agreement is a critical first step. I think it's very important to keep in mind that climate change ultimately is a global problem, that the U.S. is 15% or so of global emissions and will be shrinking as uh, our policies become more effective. Uh, and so we have to find ways of working with other countries. That means starting with the allies, starting with Europe, starting with the UK government, which is hosting the next big climate change conference in November in Glasgow. It also means working with Brazil, uh, where the president has frankly not been supportive of climate change policies. It means working uh, first and foremost with China, the world's largest uh, emitter. And in the run-up to the Paris Agreement, uh, not so long ago, it was the ability of the United States and China to work together that really framed what was possible in Paris. And now the Chinese-U.S. relationship is much more fraught. There's a lot more pressure and tension inside that relationship. And, and so this is going to be a foreign policy problem in addition to a national policy issue. And I think it's interesting that he's assigned John Kerry 
to lead on the foreign policy side around climate change uh, because John Kerry is somebody who knows this issue extremely well and in particular uh, knows how to develop the right relationships uh, between the United States and China. Next up is Nicole Capritz. She is founder and executive director of Climate Action Campaign, a San Diego nonprofit that has helped to get eight local 100% clean energy climate action plans passed, including the city of San Diego's plan. Capritz emphasizes the urgency of the crisis. President-elect Biden has set this ambitious target of getting to net zero carbon by 2050. And while that's a great first step and it's certainly a a departure from where we've been uh, the last four years, uh, we're probably gonna push for a more ambitious target um, and timeline of 2040 or 2035. And certainly we intend to do that at the local level, hopefully model what that can look like. But clearly this is progress and we're excited to work with the president-elect and his cabinet and everybody else to make real change happen. Ram Ramanathan is a professor of climate and atmospheric sciences at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. He explained what he likes about Joe Biden's climate plan. The most important thing is he has recognized the investment it's going to need. I think he has committed to uh, trillions of dollars over the next uh, five, 10 years. So that's the first thing we need to recognize. Uh, We can't fool ourselves thinking it's just going to happen. No, it's not going to happen. It it requires top-down policies, top-down investment, so that from the bottom up, the industries, the private donors, private investors will join in. We need both. We need the top-down action. We need that investment. And then we need bottom-up movement, all the way starting from our kids in schools, urging the adults to take action, to involvement by private foundations, involvement by industries, involvement by investors. All that's needed because we have delayed taking action so, so long. Tara Lawson-Reamer, a Democrat, is a newly elected San Diego County supervisor. Lawson-Reamer emphasizes the Biden plan's investment in reshaping the green economy and transforming millions of jobs. Fundamentally, the plan is focused on the kind of investments that we need to tackle this climate crisis. And those investments are going to, in their very nature, shift our economy from an old economy that's been dependent on fossil fuels to a new economy that is, in its very, very core, um, dependent on renewable energy to to power us, um, you know, for, for the next generation. Those were comments by various San Diego leaders and experts on the ambitious plans by incoming President Biden to address climate change. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. I'm Mark Sauer with Jade Hindman, and you're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. We end our show today with a remembrance of a San Diego blues legend. Singer-songwriter Tomcat Courtney died this month at the age of 91. Courtney traveled from the cotton fields of Texas to dancing in a three-ring circus, and along that road he found the music that sustained his life. He was an award-winning, nationally known bluesman and a staple on the San Diego music scene. He performed in our studio and spoke to KPBS Midday Edition host Maureen Cavanaugh in 2013. 
for that. Thanks and welcome, Tom Cut Courtney. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, you know, that's a song that was made famous by Lightning Hopkins, right? Yeah, it was, well, it was written by Blind Lemon Jefferson, but, uh, you know, uh, Lightning Hopkins, he, uh, he done it better than I think anybody else done it. They kind of made it, brought it out in, in a Texas Delta style, you know. Did it, is he one of the influences on you? Is he somebody you wanted to be like when you were coming up? Well, he was my main influence, uh-huh. really, yeah. I, I saw several of them where we was, at, you know, living in the country at that time. They had different people coming out, harmonica player, too, and maybe one or two guitars. But I saw lightning, and then I wanted guitar. Now, Tomcat, you grew up in a really small town in Texas, so how did you see all these performers when you were growing up? Well, at that time, see, if you was on a big farm, during the fall of the year, all in, most guys that played music would play out there. They would have a joint that had made out there, built up. So, like, on weekend, they would get them to play. So they would just come on the circuit to these little jute joints? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What I heard was on uh, the first instrument you really liked was your feet. Well, <laughs> I learned how to tap dance by imitating a, a train, really. How, the, how does that work? Well, see, we, when we lived on this farm, it was a cotton gin and a stove. That's all it was. And it was a creek, a big, you know, a big wide creek. So they had a bridge across it where they crossed the cattle. 
So I would go on that bridge, you know, that's where the train, you know, would cross. And so I'd be on that bridge, and a train lead with a load of cotton, and he go choo, 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 choo. And I, you know, I imitate the train, mm-hmm. you know. We didn't go to the city too often. So we went to the city one Saturday, never we'll forget it. I saw they had a little show, medicine show, like, you know, where they selling snake oil and had all kind of stuff like that. That was about 39. So uh, I saw Bo Jenkins tap dancing, and I just went to this bridge, back to this trusser, and started amputating them, you know? <laughs> And, and that and that got you out of the Texas town and into the circus? Yeah. So what happened during the 40s, around 44, they were drafting everybody in the army. So they had some dancers on this show. They called them both in the service. Somebody told them about me out there on that bridge, you know. And they came out there, yeah. And that's how I left. I was about 15 then, you know. You you saw that as your opportunity to move on into the world. Yeah, so I just kept going, you know. Now, another thing I was reading about you was that uh, when you were in the circus and you were doing your dancing, you also found out, or the world found out, you could sing. Yeah. How'd yeah, they, they found Well, the way they found out I could sing, I didn't know I had it. So, But they had this girl. She was a young lady. She was about 21 or 2. She could really dance and had a beautiful voice. And I was about 15 or 16. Anyway, I felt sorry for her because they were on her back. They wanted her to sing St. Louis Blues. So they say, and she just couldn't remember it, and voice was beautiful. So I said, oh, man, I know St. Louis Blues. I've been listening to it all my life. So, uh, so I was out there, I said, I hate to see. You know, she said, I hate to see. That evening sun go down. I said, God, come here. Lord, I hate to see that evening sun go down. I'm just going all over the song, you know. Well, go with that. Let me hear you go with that again with a kid. Let the kid sing the song. <laughs> that was San Diego blues legend Tomcat Courtney speaking to KPBS Midday Edition host Maureen Cavanaugh in 2013. Courtney died this month at the age of 91. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.